everybody. Welcome to another Prog Report podcast interview. This is Roy. Hope everybody's doing all right. Uh, just a quick reminder before we start the episode to make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, subscribe to our podcast on all our podcast networks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, and everywhere else that you can get a podcast. And also uh, make sure you check us out on progreport.com and Facebook, Twitter, Instagram for all your daily updates. Uh, this is August, and we're currently running our third installment of Progist, where we uh, break an album each day and ask you guys to join along and listen to uh, whatever album we choose. Uh, and then as a group, we rediscover some old classics, maybe find out about some new albums you weren't aware of. And uh, we have a little bit of fun with that, and you guys can comment. And you can find all of that on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We post daily uh, throughout the month of August. You can check that out. So moving into today's episode, another great new band that's coming from the pipeline of uh, former Fate's Warning members. Uh, there's a band called A to Z, which was started by drummer Mark Zonder. Uh, on this uh, album with this band, he's reunited with his former Fate's Warning vocalist Ray Alder uh, for a fantastic new uh, metal record. Uh, and uh, we really want you guys to check this one out. We think it's really good. Uh, we had Mark on the podcast here to talk about that new album, how the band came together, his drumming style, and so on. The new A to Z album comes out on August 12th. Uh, so check this one out. My partner Kyle Fago joins me on this one. So have a listen. Good to uh, meet you on, in person. Uh, we've actually done a, a, an email interview uh, recently for the recent project you had but um we're really excited to have you on for this because you have a new project new band i should say called a to z uh a to z you know sometimes people don't like that term project right because it makes it sound like it's not a lot not an actual thing is that is that right well what's happened as you guys know and like over the last 10 or 15 years it's basically excuse the expression been project l and basically (laughs) what that is uh, you can blame the musicians to a point, but you also have to blame the labels because the labels are doing these. And I've been involved with my share. You know, they're, they're looking, okay, let's shove these six or five guys together. We're going to throw a couple bucks at each of them and let's see something flies. Well, what I always kind of sound, you know, it kind of struck me after all that. Not a lot of them fly. Okay. You know, um, myself, this is definitely a band. I started it as a band. Um, I have, as you know, or you don't know, but I have 16 year old twins. So, you know, 16 years ago, it was a little rough to be on the road. I thought it was, you know, kind of uncool not to be around. Um, <laughs> so now that they're old enough, it's time to get back at it and do what I really want to do band wise, instead of just all the recordings and projects and all that kind of cute stuff. But now uh, this is definitely a band started as a band. It'll finish as a band, you know, doing the cycle, you know, we're doing the record, we're doing the interviews. We're doing the videos. We're going to be doing the tours. We're actually writing material right now for album number two. Awesome. So it's 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 going. It's going. Yeah, so, really cool. Um, yeah, that the, the project thing. I think what happens too is the fans get a little bummed out because it's just like, you know, they it's and you can tell a lot of times with a project it's kind of a throw and go. Um, the difference between this and that is I kind of put my money where my mouth was and you know got guys like Hugh Syme to do all the artwork, you know, spent the extra money on the videos because if I'm expecting the fans to really buy into this, I I can't, you know, charge a steak price and give them a hamburger, you know, Um, especially these kind of fans. This is definitely not, Hey, go to my website and look at the cute artwork. You know, no, no one wants that. They want to hold the vinyl, you know, they want to look at the stuff, you know, so came at it that way from more of an old school approach. 
Yeah, I, I think that's awesome. Uh, the album comes out on August 12th. And as we uh, are talking today, you guys dropped a second single. And uh, my favorite song on the record, which I wanted to talk to you about, Trial by Fire. But I want to get, we'll get into that. Um, but talk about uh, who you have in the band. I'll let you mention everybody. It's, it, it, for those that haven't paid attention, there's a, a great reunion here with you and Ray Alder on, on, on this band, which is fantastic for everybody. Um, but talk about the band, how you guys came together. How'd you get these five guys? It was, uh, it was my idea from the start. Um, it's kind of like my band Slavier. I think it was back in 2007. You know, I want to base a lot of stuff around the drum patterns because, you know, I sit around all day and besides recording for other people, I record for myself and try to be creative. And um, it's a lot easier to have someone write music to a kind of wacky drum part than me trying to shove that part into somebody's song. So that was my philosophy. OK, I have, you know, 108 different ideas. You know, let's start putting songs together. Um, the first guy I actually called was Matt Guillory, the keyboard player. And he said he was too busy, which basically, uh, that today that's translated as how much money is involved. None. Okay. I'm busy. I get it. I get it. I totally get it. I, you know, I'm the same way. Someone calls me up and says, you know, unless it's something overly exciting. So I guess I wasn't overly exciting, but he turned me on to Vivian Leloup, who I'd, I honestly never heard of. I'm not a guy who sits around and listens to Prague and gets up on all the latest and greatest. And he is quite he's They're younger than I am. So it wasn't like in my wheelhouse of like who I knew. Called him up on the phone and we started chatting. And, you know, he told me all about how when he was in high school, he was listening to Chroma Key and Warlord and Fate's Warning and blah, blah. And I'm thinking, oh, man, Mark, you're old. Um, <laughs> but I sent him out an idea. And it came back. It was actually Rise Again. It's that drum pattern in Rise Again, the electronic thing. And there's nothing on this record from a drum point of view that's programmed or sequenced. All that stuff is played live. Um, two reasons. I hate program stuff. And I figured if you're going to play it live, you need to be able to play it live. Uh, and I love that incorporation. I was doing it very early in Fate's Warning, where I'd incorporate the electronics with the kit. Not having a separate electronic kit, but having together i'm playing the electronics it's just more sounds so he sends me back ideas for rise again and i just you know kind of fell off my chair i went oh my god this is really happening the cool thing about viv as a keyboard player is he's a composer as well but he has a whole bunch of different like the, the sounds but guitar sounds too so when we're putting music together it's not like we're lacking guitar he's coming up with like the different heavy guitar parts and stuff and we basically had songs completely written uh, just him and I. Huh. Um, most of the songs started that way. You can kind of tell, you know, you, you hear Trial by Fire and you hear that, you know, the groove in the verse. You know, that was like, hey, guys, write something to this. You know, I couldn't really shove that into someone else's song. Uh, you know, the silence broken, same thing. It's got the drum pattern. Uh, Stranded started with that kind of electronic drum thing. And then it just grew from there. Uh, Philip obviously was the choice for a bass player probably one of the few guys in the world that I'd leave my kids, my checkbook and the keys to my house to uh, turned out to be a great friend over the years and just the automatic guy to go to. And then, you know, Jupid worked with Viv for years. So that was kind of a no brainer. Uh, Viv brought him in, started playing different guitar parts as much as he was just adding to what we were doing. He also came in with a couple cool riffs that we built songs around that, that worked out very well. And then it came down to the vocalist, the all important vocalist. And, and I knew, I needed Steve Walsh. I needed Steve Perry. I needed uh, 
you know, just a, a great big time commercial rock singer. Because the last thing I wanted to hear was, yeah, this is all cool, but I can't can't stand your singer, you know. So Ray wasn't the first choice just because I didn't I wasn't sure what was going on with him. I wasn't sure what is fate's warning connection and problem. It's none of my business. It, it's just I didn't know what he was doing. So I, you know, talked to about 30 different guys, some big name guys. Uh, I'm close friends with Phil Ahart from Kansas, who's been helping me along the way because he's obviously managed Kansas for about 40 years and kind of mentoring me a little bit with different things. And, um, you know, I said, uh, uh, Phil, you know, I know you guys replaced Steve Walsh, but uh, who came in second? You know, who came in third? You know, just looking for singers. He turned me on to a couple guys and, uh, you know, again, you know, they were all busy. No, um, <laughs> they, everybody's kind of looking for that, that quick, that quick thing. The other thing that's very interesting that I knew that even hit me harder in the face Hey, there might be a lot of great singers, but there ain't a lot of great writers. And when you start talking to some of these singers and you start talking about, hey, man, you know, we want you to write the melodies and the lyrics because that's kind of your gig. A lot of them freak out. A lot of them just don't have that. That's a double edged thing. You know, it's kind of like a basketball player who doesn't play defense. He just plays offense. Right. Um, but that's what was brilliant about Ray. You know, it got to that point where like, OK, man, it, I got I got nothing happening. The songs are coming together. Just call them. Um, we never had bad blood ever, ever, ever. Uh, and actually, when he lived in L.A., we used to hang out all the time uh, at my studio. And we were both into cars and all that kind of stupid stuff back then. And so I just called him and started chit-chatting. You know, I, I didn't want to get deep into his personal stuff or what he had going. I just said, hey, this is what I got going. Are you interested in giving it a shot? Uh, and he said, yeah. And the first thing he sent back in was Rise Again. And it completely blew us away, you know, and I knew right then we were on to something. Uh, I remember from the old days, Ray telling me how he was into this kind of music because uh, it's kind of what he was raised on, you know, and his favorite singer is Steve Perry. So, you know, it worked out. It worked out well. It gave him a different avenue to go, you know, no odd time signatures, you know, right. uh, everything wasn't, you know, overly dark. Uh, and we had songs. We purposely put them together with vocals in mind, almost like pop arrangements. You know, we're not talking about 12 minute songs. I just gave him the songs and said, do whatever you want. I'm not gonna tell you a thing. I'm not gonna, no, you do whatever you want. And everything you hear on that record is a one shot. I'm not gonna say it's a one take, but we never changed anything. Those were his ideas, straight up, out of the box, brilliant, just brilliant. He sounds great, he really does. It fits yeah. the music, it's, it's spot on. Yeah. Awesome. You yeah, think it's... he sounds different? You think he sounds different than he does with Fate's Warning? Uh, you know, may I know what you're saying. It, you could tell it's him. It's unmistakably him, but he's singing, yes, it's a different style. He's allowed to be a little bit more melodic with the lines, I think with this material. I think it's a combination of the melodicness as well as the looseness. There's a a, a certain and I've always I always wondered why he wasn't a little bit more like this with Fate's Warning, especially during that parallels time, because that's kind of in that, that ballpark where you can be a little bit looser and you get a little bit more one on one contact with whoever's listening to it. Not such of a, a standoffish vocal, but kind of that more in your face that you're talking to somebody. I mean, the king of that is David Coverdale. You know, you when you listen to that, you feel like he's in, his, in your living room and he's like spitting on you. You know, he's like right there. 
And I think Ray, you know, really came out a little bit on this one and really, really, really nailed that. I mean, yes, it's Ray, but he took and But the dude's always sang in the pocket. You know, I mean, when I played with him anyways, he always sang in the pocket and he really took that one to another level on this. Yep. Yeah. Well, album sounds great. I, I think it, it sounds fresh and he sounds young. Like his voice sounds awesome. Uh, so, you know, maybe there's some sort of sense of kind of renewed creativity that's present there. And um, thanks for sharing all that stuff about all the singers and everything. That's really, really interesting to me to think what might've been, you know, um, I guess I want to get into some of the details of the recording of the album. I don't know if some of this was like during the time of COVID or like if you guys got together or if this was at a home studio, but I'm always curious about, you wrote the songs of the drums first. It sounded like collaborated on keys, but did you base all the tracks originally with like final drum tracks and send them out and piece it together that way? Or did you get together? Like how did that process work out? Considering that four out of five live in different countries, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> Philip and I are here, but he's actually in Arizona. I'm in California, Ray's in Spain, Viv's in France and Jupe is in the Netherlands. Wow. And then put COVID, put COVID on top of that. So I right. think that's kind of obvious what happened there. Okay. Yeah. Um, thank God for the internet. Thank God that yeah. all of these guys are very adept at recording and sending files and, and all that kind of stuff. It was basically flawless. I would have to honestly say it was easier than getting together in a room, you know, cause you get together in a room and this guy's playing and that guy's playing. And as much as getting together is cool. The other only other problem that happens with getting together is like everybody gets fixed on like your first idea, which is necessarily not your best. Oh, no, we really like that. Well, you know, usually I do like 15 different versions of that. But you guys are stuck now because you like this. We we just moved it around, you know, and, and, and added things um, right out of the block. It was all demo. You know, it was just, you know, the drum sounds that I had that were just up. Um, and we just, you know, we demoed the living daylights out of everything. Um, and then when it came time to actually record, I brought the engineer into my place to really dial in the drums uh, and everybody cut, you know, in their own studios. Um, you know, actually, Philip came to L.A. and he recorded the bass with me, uh, the whole album. And that's where you see some of those like on Trial by Fire, the video of him sitting behind me and me at the console. That's when he was recording bass and Alex Solk was there shooting video and pictures and stuff like that. So he recorded the bass there. Uh, not that he couldn't have recorded at his place, but it was just a good excuse for us to get together and screw around, basically. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's great. You know, it's always great when you're working together like that um, in, in the same room. Uh, and uh, no, that's the way we recorded it. It was kind of piece by piece. And then, you know, I had the big job of taking everybody's files and getting it in one big session and getting it perfectly. Because the last thing I wanted to do is send it to the engineer and it'd be like piecemeal and stuff all over the place i wanted to take it download the files push everything hard left and it should just play you sure. know and that, and that takes a work a lot of work as you know because just the computer can get funny you know things can happen and you got to just make right. sure so it's checking and double checking and that's how the recording process worked yeah that's really cool thanks thanks for sharing all the details we, we were speaking with uh, gavin harrison i don't know three weeks ago from porcupine tree and he was able to record at his home and I just, as a drummer, the reason I want to know is I hate setting up in a studio and the pressure of all that. I like being in a home, like, you know, it's, it's basically like your home field advantage of sorts. So, um, I think the drums sound great. And so I, I, I don't understand the idea of going to big expensive 
you know place you have to rent out for two weeks any longer just about but well here's the here's the kicker um a couple things i basically have all the gear that you're going to have in that you know thousand dollar day studio not everybody can have that i mean i have an analog console that i've had for 25 years um i have everything that's neve you know uh neve summit audio lexica i mean i have just because number one, I was in the studio business. Also, I've been doing it a long time. But more importantly, I didn't get married till I was 43. <laughs> so I could spend before that, I could spend all that money on gear. No right. problem. No problem at all. Um, and the studio business was really good. So I, I had no problem spending money on gear. That that has a lot to do with it, though. You know, you got to have that setup um, all the way down to, you know, the A to D converters, you know, um, you, you lose a lot. You can't just stick a bunch of SM57s on the drums and think, oh, yeah, I'm going to have the greatest drum sound in the world. And going beyond that, the engineer. You know, I brought one of the guys in from DW and just dialed it in. You know, I can't do that. I mean, I can wing it, but you you want that next level. And again, kind of a philosophy behind this whole record was, was my philosophy of you find the best people you can find and you just let them go, you know, I'm not going to tell Hugh Syme what to do with an album cover. You know, I'm not going to tell Ray what to sing. Uh, I'm not going to really tell Simone how to mix. I mean, obviously, we went back and forth on things, but you just find the best people you can find and let them do their thing. Yeah, right on. So this is a question you probably get and have gotten many, many times. And I don't want to pigeonhole you as a drummer, but as a metal or prog metal drummer, I think best known as such, you're one of the few that plays traditional grip. Um, so I, again, I'm sure that question comes up quite a lot, quite often. Um, but I think it does play into what makes you more of a unique drummer and a, and a drummer that has your own sound, which is, I think as a drummer, what you're hoping for. Um, do you feel like traditional grip has offered you advantages over the years? And if so, kind of talk a little bit about that as again, one of the few metal prog metal drummers that plays that way. Um, that just goes back to like when I was taking my lessons, you know, when I was age seven. You know, yeah. back then there was match grip was out, man. That wasn't it. You know, back then it was all about jazz um, and traditional grip. And it was funny because I remember playing through, you know, having my lessons as well as playing through all the uh, the bands and orchestras and schools. Traditional grip, you either get it or you don't. I don't think I, I, it can be taught, but I think you either it either works for you or it doesn't i've seen a lot of guys i mean let's face it god rest his soul but neil pert had the worst left hand traditional grip i think we've all seen nothing personal it just i'm I'm just being true you know look at vinnie caliuta look at steve smith now that's what you call a left hand you know picaro played match grip cool um i just did it my whole life and it it, i I worked on it because i knew you're going to need power in it um, I looked at guys like Steve Smith, you know, and, and kind of saw I didn't go overboard with Freddie Gruber and all of that kind of stuff. I just my thing was just hours a day, you know, um, I do play matched at time because I have the left hand, the little snare drum over here that you really can't play that way. Mm-hmm. I think I did the whole Slave Your Album match grip just because mm-hmm. I, was, I was bored, maybe. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it helps or hurts me because there's plenty of guys match grip that just, you know tear it up um it's just easier for me to play like 16th notes and 32nd notes because i've been doing it for so much longer um Mm -hmm. that way and the real truth the real bottom line is i like it 
It's I like the way it feels. I like the way it looks. I like when I play how I've developed my left hand to really stick it in the rim. Um, I can do it. I can do that, you know, match grip too, but I, I just like it. You know, I, I just, I just like it is what it really comes down to. Well, I, I think fans of your music like it as well. And, you know, it's, it's just an interesting thing. You, I feel like you're seeing less and less of it, but like Todd Sukerman has really gotten to this point of being considered, you know, one of the greatest drummers, at least of among drummers that I know. Uh, and he's playing with sticks, playing some really hard stuff. Dave Weckl plays, you know, the mess out of his drums and he's traditional grip. So yep. I think it's cool. It's just there aren't, a, you know, you'd almost count on one hand the number of traditional grip drummers that play like metal, uh, you know, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but I just think it's great. So I had no I idea that it, you'd played match on see, an album. See, Mark, this yeah. is why I bring a drummer to ask drummer yeah. questions. Sorry. No, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think a lot of that, too, is when you're talking about those guys that you're talking about. And again, what anybody does is up. Hey, God bless. That's what makes it America. But yeah. You're talking about guys that are schooled and usually when you're whether you start really young or you're in the school orchestras or whatever traditional grip is there and some guys gravitate to it um I, as i remember and, and i didn't go to berkeley by any means but i i thought in the old early days when it was really heavily jazz based it was all traditional grip i think that's you right. know you see guys like vinnie caliuta and stuff like that uh you know stuart copeland there's another one mm -hmm. um I think it's just the way they learned when they were kids, you know, and here's the other one that, that, that kind of separates the men from the boys as a drummer, you know, I mean, my dog could play match grip. Okay. It's natural. It's, it's, it's like grabbing chicken wings. You know what I mean? It's like, it's natural to play traditional. You got to work on it. It's, it's a whole different muscle group set. It's a whole different thing. It doesn't come natural. Kind of the King Kong drummer kind of thing comes natural. Uh, you know, match a grip. So I think that's why a lot of people gravitate to that more right. um, than spending the time and the energy and the effort uh, playing traditional grip. But I think a lot of those guys are a little older and just been taught back in the day that way. Right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, as someone who, who is not a drummer though, what's what I find interesting in listening to this album, particularly from the beginning, from the first notes of the first song, I can tell it's you playing drums, you know, from having listened to you forever. And it's very unique to the music. It, it you know, even with wanting to uh, maybe make this music more accessible, like you were saying, you no know, 12 minute songs, things like that. I still find you're doing interesting drumming and not just you haven't simplified there, which I think makes the music, uh, you know, out, stand out is what I'm trying to say. I learned an interesting lesson. And first of all, thank you. And truthfully, that's what I've strived for my whole life. I don't have all the rock books that all, like a lot of guys learned all the basic rock fills. I don't have Carmen Apice's book on rock drum filling. I was always kind of, I was that guy who kind of threw the manual away. As much as I had my lessons and I was taught and I can read and all that, when it came to working out of books, I kind of went left field on the whole thing, kind of just did my own thing and stole things and, and, and came up with my own style. But I was always striving that, you know, that the, the prime example is Eddie Van Halen Two one note. You don't even need two notes, just one note. And you go, Oh, that's Eddie. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was striving for. Now here's the kicker though. Is that good or bad? I mean, does it pigeonhole me? Um, when I played with Graham Bonnet, the big, big thought and theory behind my head was, okay, 
this is like straight up kind of commercial hard rock. You can go do your Cozy Powell imitation. You can play straight up, you know, maybe truthfully, the whole idea was to go play there and, you know, the Scorpions would be at a gig and go, oh, wow, look at that guy. You know, we're looking for a drummer. That was my whole thought. I, I like you said, I, I, I'm, I have a certain sound and I'm in a certain realm. I was trying to get out of that. And um, it didn't work, number one. <laughs> and number two, it, it was kind of unsatisfying. I mean, I played the songs for what they were. I approach music the same regardless. But I definitely, you know, the, the point of this record was to put my stamp on it, number one. But number two, whether you're a musician, a listener, or a drummer, it's all about the groove. If you can't tap your toe, and if you can't get it after the first chorus, then we did something wrong. Because yeah. I, I wasn't into the whole odd time thing. I wasn't into really weird stuff. Someone has to anchor it, and that's usually the drums. So if you look at songs like Trial by Fire, the opening number, and even the ending number, the silence is broken. You hear these drum riffs, and you hear electronics flying around. You hear cowbells. You hear toms. You hear all kinds of stuff. I'm basically hitting everything with my right hand. But the kick and snare are one, two, three, and four. Right. You can't miss it. You know, it's just it's there. It's the groove. Does it make me unique? Well, I like to hope to think so, but can I make everybody move is the more important question. I want to ask you about uh, some of the songs uh, on on the record, a couple of the singles mainly. So Trial by Fire, if you could talk a little bit about how that one came to came together. Um, that was one where, um, that was one of the first three songs. So what we had right off the bat was Rise Again, um, Runaway, and trial by fire and where that came from that was a riff that jupe had the basic riff the guitar riff but i had that drum pattern that's throughout the verse and when we put the song together i didn't i didn't it's interesting because i didn't want your traditional big chorus and then the really light verse the big chorus the light verse i wanted that kind of kind of hard heavy rock song where it just goes from the beginning and it just it just it grabs you right off the front and it just holds on to you. And then the chorus releases. The chorus is the big release. You know, it's the groove. It's that, you know, the feel good hit of the summer that has that, you know, the, the groove that everybody can catch. So that was the first one that we put together. That was definitely put together in, in a very pop format. Um, you know, verses and choruses. I love the halftime bridges that we have that kind of break it down. I thought it was important to get away from just this driving, driving thing. To me, it's all about the dynamics of, you know, if I'm if I'm giving you, you know, let's say I'm giving you water all the time and I take the water away. When I come back with the water, it's really going to mean something as compared to if the hose was just on the whole time. So it's that kind of just the dynamics. Um, and I love the ending. I love I love the Earth, Wind and Fire ending. Um, wow. I don't know anybody really doing that too much anymore. Um, I don't know. You know, that that song has the big background vocals. I brought in my friend Robbie Wyckoff to to do that. I don't know if sure if you're familiar with Robbie or not. No. OK, well, here's one. Um, his last gig was with Roger Waters doing the wall. <laughs> so he's he's a very, very uh, accomplished studio session guy. Sung with Diana Ross, Celine Dion, Steely Dan, mm. done all the Phineas and Ferb uh, stuff, does a million <laughs> commercials. You know what I mean? He, he's just that guy with the voice. And I wanted to go for that very big plush 70s and 80s background sound. 
And it's nothing against Ray, but you don't want the same guy singing all the parts because he sounds, he has a similar texture to his voice. You start bringing in other people is where you get that big thing. So gave Robbie the songs and, hey man, do your thing. And, and he did, he came up with that echo line of chains that bind you. And the, there's a lot of the stuff that you might not jump out with you, but if I took it away, you would notice it. It just adds the thickness and the texture to the vocals. Yeah, no, that song's killer. And uh, you released the first single a few weeks ago, Machine Gunner. Um, you know, tell us how that one came about. Well, believe it or not, we're a band that like plans everything. So I'm sitting here looking at this strictly as a business going, okay, nobody has a clue of what this band sounds like. I mean, it could be four dudes playing cellos. No one knows, you know, it, it could be overly proggy and just nauseating, you know, and it could make, you know, uh, Dream Theater look like, you know, Katy Perry. No one knows what the band is. So to set everybody kind of in the right direction, I didn't want to throw the ballad at them. I didn't want to throw, you know, uh, any kind of a proggier tune. Trial by Fire or um, the Machine Gunner was, you know, three minutes and 33 seconds of Van Halen meets Iron Maiden. Big chorus, good playing, great lead playing, just kick you in the face. Kind of set the tone for everything. Yeah. So that one kind of just played itself out. That was one that um, Jupe came in. And he had the riff. That's all he had was that riff. And basically, if you really listen to the song, the song is basically just that riff dressed up a million different ways, kind of like in a pop song. Okay, we're going to break it down here. Mark's going to play this. We're going to break it down here. Philip's going to play here. It's it's a very, very catchy riff with a big hook that just keeps you know coming back and coming back and coming back. But also, I thought it was very important for the first song out of the block to be super energy. You know, right on, um, yeah. same reason there's no title of the album. I didn't want to get it, give anybody a preconception of like what it was, because, you know, people are they all they have to do is hear the name of the album and they'll dismiss it before even listening to it. So everything is kind of built that way. And then the third song that's coming out that'll come out with on August 12th is Stranded, which mm -hmm. is, you know, one of the quote power ballads or however you want to call it. Uh, that's Ray's favorite song. So I had to kind of give it up. I would have went with Rise again, but. <laughs> either way, I think we're I th either, either way, way I think you're we're covered. Really, yeah, you know, I think we're good. It, they're 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 different, but they're similar. Um, it, it's it's if you go back to that 80s thinking, remember how like when bands came out, you knew it at a certain point, the ballad was coming. You know, the power ballad was coming. Uh, the thing I really like about that song, though, is the ending kind of kicks into that heavy thing. And I can see that in a live situation where that'll go on for a minute or two. And it'll it'll it's not going to be your traditional power ballad, per se. Um, I think Ray did an amazing job. It's kind of, he sounds like Chardet a little bit on that one. Uh, he's got that whole sexy thing going. So if we can cross over, you know, God bless. Um, and just a really strong chorus. It's really, that the, all 11 songs to me can stand on their own with strong choruses. You know, some might be five minutes long, but the choruses are great. I mean, Far Side of the Horizon, you know, to me, that has an amazing chorus. Um, he just did an amazing job with the choruses. And, and one of the things that really is magical about this record is when we were putting the music together, me and Viv are like, okay, here's the verse, here's the chorus, here's the verse. And, and I, I said it before, I, I come from kind of a school where, you know, the chorus is the heavy part and the big driving, bring it home. And the verses are kind of mellow and, you know, you're getting to the chorus. A lot of times Ray flip-flopped it right. and he took the heavy part and made it a verse and used the release and the slow, not slower, um, more more melodic part and put the chorus there. You know, when you listen to At the Water's Edge, it's exactly what he did. Uh, he did it on a few songs. 
And it's just so magical when you have people, you know, you find the best people you can, just let them do their thing. And then there's magic or there's not, but I'm not going to tell them what to do. And him bringing that in was, it was magical. There's no question. It was absolutely magical. Agreed. Absolutely. So Mark, if I could, I want to ask you, kind of going way back, the first band that I was aware of with you, and I was born in 1984, so it wasn't like I was aware of it at the time, but uh, the band Warlord, um, so heavy metal band uh, from the mid-80s, and that was a band that you were in before Fate's Warning. Um, I'm curious, just from a historical perspective, like what sort of drumming, what sort of drummers were you into in the early 80s? Like what was influencing you? My biggest influence in that period was Ensley Dunbar. And if you listen, I don't know if you've ever heard the first three Journey albums. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not wait before Steve Perry. See, I grew right. up in the Bay Area in San Jose. Yep. They were a San Francisco band and they used to play. And I would go see with my brothers, you know, in a club that hold 300 people. You know, Neil Sean had the big afro and the whole bit and the Fu Manchu. And here's <laughs> Ensley Dunbar. And here, here's an, this will tie it all together. But here's Ensley Dunbar. First guy that I ever saw inverted China. First guy that I ever saw had a drum set that had moons and stars painted on it. Hmm. First guy I ever saw tore it up playing traditional grip. So when I saw him, I went, oh, you can do this. You can play heavy and do this. Um, I stole so much off his record. You know, as a drummer, you would know I stole so much of the the importance of a left foot keeping time with the hi-hat, you know, whether it's on the on beat, whether it's on the off beat. You know, I, I, I played around with taking it to the clave and all kinds of stupid, goofy way. I, it, it doesn't it doesn't work for me. It's either on the beat or off the beat. And you use that in conjunction with what you're doing with your right hand a lot of time. There's so much motion, so much groove uh, in these clinics I used to do. I used to play, you know, Judas Priest living after midnight drum beat where the, the ride symbol was playing quarter notes. But the, the foot was keeping the quarter note. OK, OK, this is cool. This sounds like the record. But the minute I took that foot and put it on the offbeat, all of a sudden you're kind of like in a salsa club. You know, it, 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 there's a total different dynamic. And that's kind of my, basically the genesis or the bottom line of everything that I do. I'm just looking for something more creative that I can do with my body. Um, you know, I, I can have my right hands and left hand playing all over the place as long as the groove is tight and it's consistent and, and memorable. It has to be repetitive. Um, I'm good, but that early influence stuff, Ensley Dunbar and the hi-hat stuff, oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. and that, that kind of just set it in stone right there. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. great. Absolutely. So kind of in keeping with the history, I love that story about early journey. That's great. Um, was there a kind of a marked change in your mind when you switched from Warlord into Fate's Warning? Like, did you start to approach the drums differently with it being, you know, more of prog, prog metal, or was it pretty much the same thing? And then how did your influences change during the kind of late 80s, early 90s? Um, it, it, it didn't really, you know, I'll, I'll never forget. I went to, uh, when I first got to LA in the, in the early eighties, very early eighties, I went to a guy for drum lessons and kind of said, Hey, you know, I want to play like Tommy Aldridge, this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy and he goes, Oh yeah, I can have you do that in two weeks. I'm thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> um, it, that, that didn't happen. Um, a lot of it was just practice, practice, experimentation. I sat in a storage bin in Van Nuys, California, where it was 104 degrees and all metal with two bass drums just going for hours. Right. Um, I mean, if nothing else, I put in the hours. Am I Dave Weckl putting in the hours? No, <laughs> but I, I put in the hours. Um, it's just when I play, it's just the experimentation factor. Getting into Fate's Warning was a whole different ballgame because Warlord 
I'm not gonna say that it was a pop band, but you know, there was no odd time and it, it was all very song oriented, especially, you know, uh, uh, whatchamacall, Perfect Symmetry. Oh my God, you know, uh, I mean, I can count so I can figure out odd time. It wasn't my favorite thing to do, but it was a real big challenge making different time signatures feel good, you know, and, and different things like that. That's probably the only Fates Warning record that wasn't technically recorded to a click because mm. just some of those parts, like in Part of the Machine, they weren't in tempo. They weren't in time. They was kind of a freeform jam, per se. Um, I didn't really approach it any differently, you know, whether it was that or when someone hires me for a song, I just kind of go into this. I mean, I don't turn the black lights on and smoke a bunch of weed and get into a zone. I don't do that. But I just I just listen and I listen and I go, OK, what 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 are you hearing? What sounds good? And then I start to try to push the envelope. You go, well, what would happen if you kind of turn that around or, you know, take the left hand instead of every other hit on the snare, put it on the rack tom or put it on the open hi-hat or a lot of experimentation. I am not that guy that pulls out the final version right off the bat. It is trial and error. And there's there's more error than trial. There's <laughs> it just you, you have to do that, I think, if you want to expand. Because and I think everybody that can really play will tell you that. Unless some people, you know, God bless them, are, are that out of the womb amazing. But I, I don't think so. I think it's practice. I really, it's just, it's yeah. teaching your body. And then if you're, you know, you have the God-given thing in your head of how to go, okay, my body, I got it all going. Like, let's, how far can I stretch this? You know, it's the simplest thing, but a lot of people don't do it. Don't do it but you're like just playing over the bar line. No one says you have to stop on four and hit the kick on one. It's how creative do you want to be? But still make it feel good, obviously. And there's a million of those that go out the window. I'll never forget. And there's a drummer, you'll appreciate this. I sat there in that shed for hours playing double stroke rolls with my feet and paradiddles. <laughs> After getting done, you know, losing six pounds in sweat over that time period, I went to record it. I couldn't tell any difference. <laughs> you know, I, again, it, you have to experiment. You have to try different things, you know. Um, some fail, some, some sound great in your head and sound horrible when you play them back, you know, I want to, so, I want to just close, uh, with one last question here for you. Just going uh, again, back to that era, but recently, uh, was the 25th anniversary, I believe of Pleasant Shade of Grey and, uh, you know, an album that for Kyle, I'm sure also myself and everybody that, that I was friends with at the time. I mean, it just, it, it messed with our heads so bad. <laughs> it was the most amazing record at the time. And uh, still is something that's so influential. You know, what what can you tell us about working on that record and, and recording that one? Oh boy, do I got stories. Um, <laughs> I think personally, it is probably the most underrated record in the Fates Warning catalog. I think it took a really bad rap and I don't know why. Um, I don't know. Oh, not with us. We all loved it. Yeah. <laughs> but but, I, but I've heard a lot of people talk. You know, I, I mean, I, I hear and read. And I even read some article this morning about some guy saying how on the list of all the Fates Warning records, that one's at the bottom, you know. and That's uh impossible. And I think when, yeah. Okay, you know. Not exactly. For what it's what worth, I, would... I, I, I always assume that people think that's the best one. So yeah. I that's that, that was my conception growing up, you know, into prog music around that time. But go ahead. Sorry. I, I, I thought it was brilliant. Um, I don't know if either of you guys ever saw that thing live, but it was something to see no, live. No. We pulled it off. I had a rack as big as a refrigerator with all the electronic <laughs> sequencers and 
blah. Every we played it note for note for the record. Um, it was amazing. The one funny story that that came up, you know, Jim had the idea of part one, part two, part three, part four. When we were working on it, though, we had other titles like the Kansas part, you know, or right. we had like different our own little names for it. Um, I thought it was brilliant. I think that record is so deep that people don't even haven't even gotten to the point of how deep it really, really is. Um, I put something on the other day by accident or it, it popped up on a YouTube and I forgot, and I forget, I, I couldn't tell you the parts that, you know, I could tell you what, you know, eye to eye sounds like, but when you say part six, I, I don't know what part six sure. is, you know, I, I don't know. But the very last part of that record, it's kind of the slow grinder and it just starts building and building. I thought to myself, this, this is, this is, this is deep. You know, this is really deep. Um, love doing it. I thought it was a major step. I thought it was the step that kind of said, Hey, look, yeah. You know, Parallels was cute. We missed the boat. Warner Brothers didn't pick it up, whatever. Nirvana came in. Yeah, it was all over. But check this out. This right. was like real. This was like thick. Um, I'll never forget. I go to New Hampshire because that's where Jim was living at the time. We had to program everything up. Now, you got to remember, this is way before computers. OK, no way to have computers. I'm talking about my little Roland 505 my little Yamaha sequencer and we're programming up the, the different sound effects and all that kind of stuff to get everything just right. And I'll never forget, we work the whole day and we go to walk out to go to dinner in the, in the dining room. And I actually knocked the plug out of the wall and nothing was saved. Oof. Nothing was saved. Zero. <laughs> we, we got it all back because we remembered it, but right. it took time. Mm -hmm. And it, it was, it was an interesting story. Uh, as far as that goes, I mean, no one knows that because it was just me and Jim, but that, I, I don't know. I thought that record was so well-versed. I thought it flowed so well and live. We played it from beginning to end, just, just like it, you know, none of this stopping and being cute or anything. It went just like the record. Hmm. And cause once you started, you couldn't stop. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I thought it was great. I thought Ray sounded good that, you know, the old murder Munich and all that. And, you know, the it, it had it had some to me, some crazy ass, wild, fast runs and, and playing and stuff. And it was just, you know, I watched those videos back. It's like uh, Takumi, our road tech at the time, filmed. We were filming for the Pleasant Shade of Grey video. And the original guy who filmed it, like either screwed it up or never even got drum tracks or whatever. So the last part of the tour Kumi just put a camera right there. That's why on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, you can basically see the whole thing. Mm. Um, there's all the different parts. And I go back and I look at that and I go, man, we that's intense. I thought that was intense. Um, I don't think a lot of people got it. I think the music industry was really changing at that time. Mm. Um, you know, it's kind of like what happened after Parallels. It's like, okay, uh, you know, uh, we saw like 150,000 units. Warner Brothers is supposed to come in and pick it up you know, and run with it. They do. I don't know if you guys have ever heard the remix with we only we only say goodbye. Uh, Jimbo Barton, who just got done with all the Queensryche stuff. They put him in a room with six tambourines, you know, four pounds of weed. James Labrie's in there singing background vocals. He basically made we only say goodbye sound like a Def Leppard song. OK, which at the time was great because it was following up eye to eye. You got to remember, that's like when uh, R.E.M. had that big song going on and there was a certain kind of feel to it this was right there this 
if someone would have picked this up and ran with it, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it was brilliant. It was like, it was Def Leppardy, you know, it was, it was so commercial. It was great. You know, that song by itself is kind of a, you know, we only say goodbye kind of commercial, but he really pimped it out. Right. And I, I think he like locked himself in the room for three weeks or three days and it was brilliant. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm not sure if you guys remember the industry changed with the Nirvana record coming out. Sure. And the whole, and all of a sudden yeah. here's Faith's warning selling 150,000 units. We're on the radio with no promotion. The gigs are selling out. We're playing bigger, better places. And all of a sudden we can't even get a meeting with like a, a crappy label after that. It was, it was rough. It was a tough time. It for was a lot like, of bands, yeah. It was, it was rough, you know, and, uh, you know, but I always, I always kind of crack up and, and, and think to myself, it's like, okay, you see Journey, Sticks, Kansas, Foreigner, they're still selling out big places and, you know, they're playing all their hits. You know, I haven't really seen a Counting Crows Matchbox 20 reunion coming down the pike anytime soon. I, I just, I don't, you know, God bless those bands. And I, and I always said, and Motley Crue is my example, I go, hey, I might not be into the band, but if you're making money in this business, I have to take my hat off to you because I ain't. And you are so God bless you, but that whole era that came in that kind of killed everything. It didn't have staying power. It didn't have, you know, uh, twenty-year reunions, thirty-year reunions. Those bands aren't out touring and tearing it up. You know, it, the music industry, you know, radically changed, right? And it was, and it was, it was rough. But um, look, you're still here. You're still making killer music. I think that's a, that's a good point for us to to let you go here. Um, but again, I just uh, want to make sure everybody's aware of the the A to Z record. A couple songs are out now. We got Machine Gunner and Trial by Fire, both killer. Album comes out on August 12th. We got the Mark Zonder Ray Alder reunion on this thing. What more do you want? And uh, it, it's killer. Everybody, go check it out. Mark, real pleasure to speak to you, man. Really, we're we're big fans, and uh, we love hearing you play uh, anytime you keep doing it. And, and, you know, good luck with the record. Absolutely. Absolutely. I really, really appreciate your guys' time and all the support because without it, you know, I would just be driving kids around, and that would be it. For sure. Cool. All right, man. Hey, pleasure. Enjoy okay. the rest of your day. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, I Mark. really appreciate all the help, man, you guys. Yeah, man. Take care, you guys. You got it. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to Mark again for the interview. Don't forget the new debut album from A to Z comes out on August 12th on Metal Blade Records. A couple of singles out now you can check out. We're going to close with a bit of the opening track from the album Trial by Fire. Um, please don't forget for upcoming news interviews, check us out on parkbart.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and special episodes on YouTube, including this interview, which you can see on YouTube as well. And we'll see you guys again soon. Bye.